disenfranchisement and chaos. Where are we going with the Supreme Court's 14th Amendment consideration? Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics, I am really delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Andy Kroll of ProPublica, just a smart, thoughtful, investigative reporter doing the Lord's work out there and looking at the interesting questions confronting us in politics, in government, in this mess of a Supreme Court that we've got. And Andy, first of all, welcome back. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, I our discussion about your deep dive on Leonard Leo was one of my favorite episodes of last year. Just super duper interesting. And so I was very excited to see that you wanted to weigh in, as you did on ProPublica, on this 14th Amendment question. You did a kind of table setting piece. And now the meal has been served because the oral arguments have happened. We're recording this the day after all of that went down. Ooh, wow. There's a lot to go through here because there are some big, weighty questions for America kind of wrapped up in this case. First of all, for anyone who's been living under a rock on this, could you just set up for us what's at issue here? The case is called Donald J. Trump versus Norma Anderson. Norma Anderson is a former state senator from Colorado who filed a lawsuit last fall in state court in Colorado, arguing that the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Donald J. Trump cannot seek the presidency again because he engaged in insurrection or gave aid or comfort, using the language of the 14th Amendment, to an insurrection or to insurrectionists, specifically focusing on the events of January 6, 2021. That case started at the trial court level effectively in Colorado, made its way up to the Supreme Court of Colorado, and made massive news in December of last year when, a, by a 4-3 decision, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Donald J. Trump was disqualified from the primary ballot in Colorado and could not be on the ballot there and thus could not seek the electoral votes of Colorado the Secretary of State of Maine almost immediately issued an administrative decision. No no trial, no court decisions, just unilaterally said, basically, we agree with what Colorado has done, and we are also disqualifying Donald Trump from the ballot. And this sets up this huge legal battle of can the former president be disqualified under this amendment to the Constitution, specifically the Section 3 part of the 14th Amendment, the case quickly makes its way to the Supreme Court in January of this year. The Supreme Court agrees to hear it almost instantly and schedules these oral arguments, which happened on February 8th, the day before we taped this, and really tease up this titanic legal battle that you know is of a scale we have not seen since Bush v. Gore in 2000 when you consider what the consequences of this decision could be on a presidential election. Right, It's it's been sort of framed by legal scholars and political commentators and pundits and analysts and whatever the heck I am as really one of these titanic, cataclysmic, everything is thrown into this type, at least if not decisions, considerations, because it's got a little bit of everything. It's got the echoes of the Civil War and the potential for a second Civil War. It's got 
meaningful questions about insurrection, about what laws apply to the president, which was separately considered by a federal appeals court earlier in the week. And this very real issue, as you alluded to with Bush v. Gore, of when do the courts step in and say, here's what is cool when it comes to choosing presidents and here's what's not. And they have the power here to say, no, Donald Trump, you can't be, you can't even run anymore. And then there's the emotional component of this. And I've got to say that I was just right before we started this, I was being interviewed on a, on another show, on a radio program. And I was saying that this has had a Lucy in the football quality to it for many Democrats, that they've been hoping for a deus ex machina from the legal system or from impeachment for nine years now. Can't somebody rid us of this meddlesome, well, he's not a priest, I'll tell you that much. Can't someone do something about this guy? And as much as I feel like I've been, I've been forced to face reality that wasn't going to happen, I think like many Democrats, I was getting a this time feeling about this <laughs> because so many conservative legal scholars were saying, this isn't a close call. This is obvious, especially if you originalist, textualist, strict constructionist types actually mean anything in what you're saying. As you dug into this, what did you make of all of those arguments that this was open and shut, or did it seem a little bit more open-ended to you? It always seemed more open-ended to me because of, it, it seems so much more open-ended because there was such, I mean, for one, such a dramatic amount of tension immediately um, applied to, focused on this court case. I mean, I'm on a a list serve that is mostly election law experts, law professors, practitioners, and then there's some of us journalists, lurkers who never write anything, but we just watch from the sidelines and learn as we go. And it was fascinating to just watch all of these different minds try to unpack what the real meaning of the third section of the 14th Amendment is, how it applies or doesn't apply in this case. To, and to see how the debates over the 14th Amendment did scramble some of the usual left-right, liberal, conservative, textualist, originalist versus the sort of broader, more expansive, looser interpretive approach to the Constitution, the usual battle lines of partisan politics and especially legal scholarship legal interpretation did not fall neatly in the battle over trying to figure out how this case was going to break break down at the court. And so it made it really interesting to watch. Obviously, as you alluded to, the history of the 14th Amendment is just so rich, so fascinating. It comes from such a fraught part of American history, the period of Reconstruction, that, that post-Civil War moment where there was both such a sense of possibility, but also such a brewing feeling of backlash and resentment and the seeds of the lost cause and all of these sorts of things that we're dealing with in a modern sense or talking about in a modern way today. I love doing the research for this story because I got to dig into all of this. And I think at the same time, it was really fascinating to watch people struggle with this question of motivated reasoning. And what I mean by that is, um, trying to separate a 
an objective, sort of clear-eyed interpretation of what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment means and should do versus seeing it through the lens of Donald Trump and the year 2024 and the political moment that we were in. There's so there's it's such a strong pull to want to think about this part of the Constitution in the context of Donald Trump and in the context of what would it do right now? What would the implications be on our presidential election, on our democracy, when you really do also have to just look at what does it say and what does it mean and what was the intent to borrow from the conservative legal crowd, the federal society crowd? What was the intent of the people who debated this and crafted this at the time that they debated it and crafted it without thinking about Donald Trump? And I, even listening to the Supreme Court oral arguments yesterday, listening to the questions from the judge, the justices, I still feel like I picked up on that motivated reasoning, that sense that the judges were looking for an off-ramp so that they did not have to take up questions of what is insurrection or did Donald Trump actually engage or give aid or comfort to insurrectionists. It really felt like they were, and we'll get into this, trying to find an off-ramp that would be palatable to as much of the public as possible without really addressing the core of what this constitutional amendment is supposed to do. I addressed that very question of the motivated reasoning with the legal scholar Kim Whaley on this show mm. a week ago, and she really lifted the veil for me on what I think many of us have long suspected, which is that in her experience clerking for federal judges, the judges or the justices start from, here's what I want to do. <laughs> and then they say, find me a precedent. Give me an argument to let me do what I want to do. And all along, what was so fascinating about this setup is that the real push was coming from these federalist society, ultra originalist legal scholars saying, we're not kidding around. Like, I know Many people think that this strict constructionism thing is a BS framed up job for we're just super duper like Republicans and we're going to act like legislators here. We're going to do whatever our po political party wants. And they said, no, we mean it when we say that we're strict constructionists. We believe in reading the original text and intent. This is what it says, and we have to follow it. And that has run smack dab against a cross current of, but what do you do when you have a law that's maybe not a good law that maybe leads to results that feel like they're in tension with concepts elsewhere in the constitution and that we believe in? For example, the aforementioned Shanna Bellows, also a previous guest on this show. I, Shanna Bellows is an extremely intelligent person happened to work with her like 25 years ago. <laughs> She's very thoughtful. I've debated with her. And if I had to entrust a consequential decision to someone, Shanna's a good place to start. But this case brings up this question of why does she get to pronounce the political death penalty on her own on someone running for president? That has not sat right with people. And so what you're what I read into what you just said, and maybe you just said some of this, is that there really is a tension here between strict constructionism, believing in the text of what the Constitution says, 
believing in the meaning of it, and believing that you have to actually follow the law. You can't just make this stuff up as you go along. But there is an actual tension here with, but that leads you to a place where Colorado or Michigan, which is an actual swing state, or red states, or in the words of Justice Roberts yesterday in the 1860s, Confederate states recently returned from rebellion could just on their own say, nope, these candidates don't qualify and drum them out. That seems a kind of reducto ad absurdum result. And so anyway, what I really appreciated about reading your piece is that because I'd been reading so much scholarship that seemed to be so one-sided, like this is open and shut, yours was the first that said, hold on a second. This is a lively legal debate. It's really not clear cut. And you can make arguments the other way. And that was predictive because that's what ended up happening. Sorry, that was a lot. I just threw an entire, I just threw an entire show at you there. Pick anything you want. Yeah. I mean, let's stay on this sort of debate within the originalist textualist community. And let's look at one question at issue in this case. And it was something that came up yesterday. And I think it's particularly revealing about this debate and why I think this case is both so interesting and can be so maddening as well. So one of the arguments put forward by Trump's legal team and his legal team in this case, we're not talking about Alina Habba and Rudy Giuliani and the- This isn't the D team. This is the A team. No, this is like, this is a very serious set of litigators, including this guy, Jonathan Mitchell out of Texas, who is, I've talked to him before, read interviews with him. He is an extremely talented person that you will probably hear more about in the future. One of the arguments that he put forward and that was debated yesterday was this. The president is not covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because the presidency is not specifically mentioned the text of the of section 3 which is true and that the president is not technically or textually an officer of the United States which is one of the other categories of people covered by this amendment and there was a back and forth about this and Mitchell hewing to that sort of textualist approach originalist approach said that there are other places where the president is not referred to as an officer. There are other instances of this in the Constitution. So we think that this is one possible argument for why this case should be overturned. The president is not an officer of the United States, which, if you think about it on a very basic level, seems absurd. How is the most important political leader of the country not an officer of that country? How, put another way, would the framers, the writers of this amendment in that post-Civil War period have said that Jefferson Davis cannot run for any office in the country from the lowliest county whatever all the way up to a member of Congress or a member of the U.S. Senate. But he can run again and be president and vice president of the country that he just tried to overthrow. Like it and at a logical level, it doesn't make sense. And if you go back and look at the actual congressional record of the debates in 1860, whatever, 1866, I think it was, 
65, 66, you can see people say, why isn't the president mentioned in here? And someone else says, pay attention to the words or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. That's the actual language. And so there's you have this great sort of textual conflict here, which is Mitchell's making this point where like, we don't use this language to refer to the president and other parts of the Constitution. So he's not an officer. And then you go back and say, but the framers' intent was absolutely, or the found, the writers of the amendment, their intent was absolutely to include it. So, so again, even within this one part of the conservative legal world, of which Mitchell is an esteemed member, and of which these conservative Supreme Court justices are the leaders, obviously, there is debate about this officer question. I would be really surprised if the court ultimately took that off-ramp, mostly because I think there are other off-ramps they want to take that we'll, right. we can get to, obviously. And there are many off-ramps, as I put it in my piece. There are a lot of permutations that could come out in this decision. But even on that little seemingly absurd question, is the president of the United States an officer under the United States, you are finding these arguments for and against among the originalist and textualist crowd. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. It really does have the quality of, for all of our Jewish listeners out there, <laughs> this is literally how the Talmud works, is you start with these little questions yep. of like a single word, and then the rabbis debate them. And the kind of the central prayer of Judaism, the Shema, like there's this whole book, there's this whole book that starts with an argument. When do you say it? You know, it's called the Mishnah. <laughs> and some rabbis say this, and some rabbis say this, and it never gets anywhere. I say that as a Jewish dude. So like, it's complicated, but that's, I mean, this really is, this is super tricky because as you say, the record is pretty darn obvious here, right? Yeah. Like th there's certainly an argument, John Bingham, who is the drafter of the 14th amendment, says in the congressional debate, he explicitly says like, I'm referring to the presidency here. Yeah. And the constitution lists the president as an officer of the United States. I mean, it's it seems pretty clear cut, but you have no less a source than Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson saying yesterday that she has a problem with this, that, yep. that she, she literally says in the <clears throat> oral arguments, why didn't they put the word president in the very enumerated list of officers yeah. in section three? And she says, the thing that's really troubling to me is I understand the argument that he's an officer, but they were listing people that were barred and the president is not there. So she, who is a lot more of a legal scholar than I am, thinks that this is at least an open question. I, I, I do want to touch on, just before we move on to some of these other deep questions here, what you said at the very end there, because there has been a lot of speculation that the Supreme Court is like JV basketball player who really doesn't want the rock in their hands. They're <laughs> looking to pass this off. And there has been speculation about, well, what would that look like? How would they pass the ball? And th this question of, well, you could just say Donald Trump isn't an officer. You know, the president isn't an officer. So there you go. This doesn't apply. The problem is that there are unintended consequences to everything. And so, for example, if you took that road, then it would have effects elsewhere in the Constitution. So, for example, 
the clause, the emoluments clause, banning officials from taking gifts and bribes from foreign governments, the prohibition on religious tests for federal offices, the provision allowing the Senate to disqualify impeached officers from future posts, all refer to officers yeah. of the United States. So if the Supreme Court does this, they're saying that the Constitution doesn't apply to presidents in all of those other areas. That's not great. So anyway, okay, going back to another section of your analysis in your article, you break it down to three core questions that the court was going to have to decide on. One of them was this, does the 14th Amendment even cover presidents, i.e., are they an officer? A second is, did Donald Trump engage in insurrection, which I guess you could break into two kind of sub questions. Was it an insurrection on January 6th? And did Donald Trump engage in it? And then finally, can a single state act unilaterally here? Mm -hmm. like, is this self-executing and can secretaries of state just do this? You watched the oral arguments closely yesterday. Let's start with the, they didn't speak much to the insurrection question, but that is one of the things that they could do here. They could in sort of Democrats worst daydreams and fantasies, the court could come in and say, that wasn't an insurrection. Donald Trump didn't do it. Amy Coney Barrett could say, here's your payback, Donald. I'm giving you a clean bill of health. Did you pick up anything on that question in the oral arguments? Really only a sense that the justices did not want to go there. They, I mean, it, it was striking how little time any of the nine justices spent on the meaning of insurrection and whether Donald Trump had engaged in insurrection. That's the actual language of the 14th Amendment, engaged in insurrection or, quote, gave aid or comfort to insurrectionists is essentially the actual language there. Really, there was no interest shown by any of the justices to go down that path. And I think that there are very practical and frankly, political reasons why the court would do that. And I do think that your audience, anyone who's following this stuff should really remember that the justices are very aware of the public's impression and views of the court. They're very aware of their place in history and the, how the decisions that they reach will affect the course of history. They're not isolated in a bubble. They don't operate in a vacuum. You've got to have that context there at all times, just as a caveat or a footnote to all of this. But in some ways, it's too bad that they didn't go down that path. It would have been a really interesting debate, really interesting set of oral arguments. They probably would have needed a whole other day, to be honest, to just go through it. And I say that in part because it's important for people to know that the Colorado courts heard evidence and very much took on these questions of what is insurrection? Did Donald Trump engage in it? Did he give aid or comfort? Did that match what the crafters of the 14th Amendment had in mind when they wrote this section three and put it in there? And if you go back and look at the docket, the actual evidentiary record in those Colorado cases, it's really fascinating. You see how deliberate the court was satisfying these, well, really going back, looking at the historical record, trying to settle on a definition of insurrection that a layperson would find reasonable, and then seeing if that applied to Donald Trump. I thought they did a really interesting job. 
with defining insurrection and making the case for why January 6th met that criteria, as opposed to it being just a riot or a peaceful group of protesters who took a wrong turn on Constitution Avenue, as some members of Congress like to say. <laughs> uh, on the point oh, you of- mean the hostages. Yes. Yeah, the hostages, the political prisoners, right. right. Oh, yeah. I thought that there was interesting evidence about Donald Trump's role, but also I thought that Jonathan Mitchell, the lawyer for Trump in Trump's Supreme Court briefs, made some good points poking holes in what the Colorado plaintiffs and their lawyers had put forward about Trump supposedly engaging in insurrection or giving aid or comfort. So it was an interesting debate to play out. I'm a little disappointed that it didn't get any airtime before the court in oral arguments, but I am not at all surprised because that would just be so much of a bigger bite to take in this case. And again, I think they could have done it in a totally, a whole second day of two, three, four hours of oral arguments just on that issue. And it's just clear that the court knows it needs to move quickly, seems to want, especially after seeing the oral arguments yesterday, seems to want to uh, dispose of this case in a quick manner. They're not going to touch that. I completely agree. And it would have been interesting when I have these debates privately with some of my Republican friends, what we, and this is not the same thing as an oral argument at the Supreme Court. I mean, it's close. Boy, is it great, but it's not quite the same thing. What we tend to center on is it's tough. If you look up different dictionaries, we'll use slightly different wording. It's all about yeah. revolt or rebellion against an established government. Check although there is some pushback from some that's like, well, this is more of a riot. But what that really comes down to is the use of the word organized. And in, in, Britannica has the word organized. Merriam-Webster does not. Uh, and that's what a lot of this seems to come down to. Now, you would think that having secured successful prosecutions against the leaders of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the Proud Keepers and the Oath Boys, you would have established that there was organization here. There was. Yeah. The record is, is fairly, is extremely right. clear on that. And the, the courts in Colorado drew on that evidence and drew on the January 6th committee for sure. You and right. And the January, oh, yeah, like that minor piece of work, the January 6th committee. I mean, it's so obvious. And then this question of aid and comfort, how else does one aid and comfort than to record the Star Spangled Banner with the January 6th insurrectionists in prison and play it as the opening to every MAGA rally you hold, Donald J. I mean, anyway, whatever. Let's move on. I think a lot of the action centered on the piece of this that is sort of the hardest, which is this question of self-execution. Can states act on their own? This seemed to be where John Roberts was focusing. Sometimes I, and I'm not nearly the, you're the investigative reporter, you're on these listservs. I'm basing this on my reading on, on the nine, the brethren, previous work on this. It does seem like sometimes the justices use the oral arguments as a way to sort of float trial balloons of arguments that might catch on with a majority of their fellow justices and say like, see how this feels on you. And I got a real sense that John Roberts was doing this on the question of what the states can do. And he made this argument where he said, look, 
The 14th Amendment was not meant to permit individual states to determine whether a candidate was ineligible as an insurrectionist. And he said the whole point of the 14th Amendment was to restrict state power, to not allow them to act on their own with impunity, essentially. And that's a position that's at war with the whole thrust of the 14th Amendment. And he brought up the example of, according to the Colorado litigants position, trying to bar Trump from the ballot, under their interpretation, Confederate states newly rejoining the union under duress would have been able to disqualify candidates from holding federal office. That seems a little nonsensical. So I want to turn to you and what you made of that section of the argument, but I'll just comment that to me, it once again had this flavor of, it was pretty clear, this was a dilemma where you've got wording that's in the constitution. It is, there's a plain language wording in the constitution and it's leading to a really troubling result today, like the second amendment. And what it really comes down to is much like with the second amendment, it's like, you know what the justices want to do, and they're just <laughs> going to find an argument involving commas to do it. it. It felt like Roberts here was struggling with the fact of if he had, if he'd been on truth serum, he would have been saying, I get that this is what the amendment says, but it doesn't work. It's not great. So let's find a way around this. That's how I interpreted not just Roberts's line of questioning there, but there were several other justices as well who through their questioning, seemed to focus in on this notion of a single state being able to, under the 14th Amendment, essentially change the course of a national election. It's one thing if a member of Congress from the state of Colorado engaged in insurrection or gave aid or comfort and the voters of Colorado sued and a court ruled that Colorado elected official can no longer run again because they violated the 14th Amendment. But it's another thing if one state can essentially derail a presidential election, derail a presidential candidacy, ha reach a decision solely within its own court system that affects the, the voting power, that affects the outcome, that affects the people of all of the other states. That to me was the argument that seemed to really gain the most traction at the court. And there's, there are some pieces of that to unpack. And I got into some of them in my piece. I mean, one of them, again, is this notion of, is section three of the 14th amendment self-executing, which is to mm. say that the state can just cite it in a legal argument and sue under it, and it can be enacted just by virtue of it, the text written on the page by, by, by its existence, or does it require some sort of authorization? And it's important to remember that section five of the 14th amendment is this very quick little bit of text that essentially says Congress has power to authorize the language of this amendment. It doesn't say co Congress has the sole power <laughs> to authorize the language of this amendment. And there is some precedent to precedent for parts of the 14th Amendment being self-executed in the past without Congress authorizing it. However, a bunch of legal scholars I talked to, and clearly some of the justices at the Supreme Court, 
feel that perhaps Section 5 apply, should apply here, does apply here, and that Donald Trump can't be disqualified from the ballot in Colorado or Maine or wherever else under a 14th Amendment argument. I, I talked to a number of scholars, again, who said not only is there an, a strong argument that the language of Section 5 means that Congress would need to authorize something as dramatic as a single state suing under the 14th Amendment and getting a presidential candidate knocked off the ballot, but that is also a very appealing off-ramp, to keep talking about these off-ramps, for a potential majority of the Supreme Court. I mean, based on what I heard yesterday, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would probably bet that this is the route that they go down. Now, that probably proved me wrong and made me look like an idiot. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. I want to take a quick moment to let you know about a podcast that should be familiar to many of you. It's called Talk in Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. The host of that show, the outstanding Corey Nathan, was just a guest with me. He's trying to do the same kind of thing that we're doing here, have reasonable deep, smart conversations with the kinds of people you want to hear from. David Brooks and Jennifer Rubin and Adam Kinzinger, Larry Wilmore of The Daily Show, John Popper of Blues Traveler. I, I got to stop talking about this. I'm, I'm getting jealous. Subscribe, follow, talk in politics and religion without killing each other and help both of us add a little bit more nuance, intelligence, and understanding to American politics. No, I love hearing you say that because you and I can be together on Idiot Island because let the record show that in my recording just finished as a guest on another show, I said the exact same thing. So, yeah, um, I mean, it seemed to yeah. be where they were going. Now, the as is as has been the case in the debates over the 14th Amendment, there is, of course, a very compelling counter argument to this larger question or problem, as some see it, of a single state being able to alter the presidential election, the national presidential election like this. There are people who say, let the voters decide. Don't take it out of the hands of the people. Don't let a single state disqualify a candidate like this. But there are these two originalist scholars, Paulson and Baud, who have been some of the most interesting and the most sort of attention-getting in this whole debate, because again, they're originalists who have said that absolutely the 14th Amendment disqualifies Trump. And they wrote a good piece not too long ago where they pointed out that, look, if you think about it, there is a lot in the Constitution that could be considered undemocratic. The fact right. that you, right. yeah, the fact that you have to be 35 years or older or over 35, whatever the exact language is is in a sense anti-democratic. You have disenfranchised anyone under the age from running for president. The same thing goes for the natural born citizen requirement. Arnold Schwarzenegger cannot run for president because he was not born in the United States, but he isn't a citizen. He has run for elected office and won elected office in this country, but he can never be president. That in its own way is anti-democratic. And there are lots of other examples of that in the constitution and so these two guys, these two scholars, Paulson and Bob, point out the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is another one of these supposed anti-democratic parts of the Constitution, but it's there, and it was put there for a reason, and you can't just start picking and choosing which amendments you don't want to 
abide by just because you think that it will disrupt a presidential election or you think that it will be they think that it's anti-democratic that's not how a constitutional democracy works well, it's can an I, interesting can I argument that though can i offer an amendment to that though yeah you shouldn't just pick and choose which no. elements however that's the suspicion here that's yeah. overarching all of this, isn't it? That that's what justices do over and over again. That was essentially the reaction of the Dobbs decision is you found a way, you found a way to achieve the result you wanted and you did this picking and choosing. And by the way, I'm saying this from a kind of the perspective of someone who thought that Dobbs was wrongly decided and Roe was rightly decided, but Roe was quite a contortion of an argument mm -hmm. itself, this idea that there's a penumbra of rights that are mm -hmm. implied in the Constitution. It was a little bit cleaned up in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But mm -hmm. see the dilemma, I guess, is all that I'm saying, that in theory, one should not pick and choose. You, you have to be constrained. And I think the strict constructionist argument has some merit to it, which is don't pick and choose. You have to be constrained by what the document says. Otherwise, it's madness. Otherwise, you really are just doing whatever the heck you want. But that seems to be the reality often of what's going on here. Part of the reason I wanted to tease out this question of this particular off-ramp, which we agree is the most likely one, that they're probably going to say there ought to be a law. There isn't. Congress needs to pass one here. Congress needs to act to enforce this and bar specific people that it deems from the ballot is that there are pitfalls to every route the Supreme Court might take. And there are pitfalls here. It raises questions like, would this mean that Congress would have to pass a law for any office holder mm -hmm. seeking office? What about state offices? Look, I personally think, again, caveats understood, not a legal scholar here, like New Mexico kicked Cooey Griffin, the head of Cowboys for Trump, from his job as Otero County Commissioner because he was an insurrectionist, think the Supreme Court can get around this one. But the next part of your article, you've talked about disenfranchisement, but we opened the show with the title of your article, which was Chaos and Disenfranchisement. I want to get to the chaos because you interview, or you get a quote from UCLA law professor Rick Hassan, another previous guest on this show. We have good tastes in sources. And he says what he's worried about is something else and that there's a risk of catastrophic political instability. That doesn't sound good. What's that piece? What does that look like? Right. Well, this is getting back to the sheer number of possible outcomes, off-ramps that the Supreme Court could take here. The ones that we have talked about so far are more sort of decisive, more conclusive. If they say that the Colorado Supreme Court decision is overturned because Section 3 is not self-executing, that is a, you know, that fairly settles the matter. There is some kind of finality to that short of Congress voting to authorize such a thing, which obviously the current Congress will not do. The same thing would go if they had actually handled the question of what is insurrection and did Donald Trump engage in it or this officer question. But what the court could also do and what Professor Hassan is talking about here is the court, there are procedural punts, if you will, that the court could choose if it really doesn't want to issue a decision that 
it fears could have these knock-on effects. Even like what you said about the term officer, those are real knock-on effects that the court probably wants to avoid. So the court could say that some part of the the case record in Colorado was insufficient, wasn't properly argued, properly briefed, and could send it back to the court. It could issue an argument. This one in particular is, I've heard a lot, it could release a, a decision saying that all of this legal arguing is moot because we are talking about the Republican primary ballot here, which mm -hmm. is really a product of state, county, local Republican parties and the RNC, obviously. It's not an actual federal state or federal election. So it, there's no there's a jurisdiction problem. The case is not ripe to use a legal piece of legal jargon there. And so the case would sort of be kicked back to Colorado, but it wouldn't be decided and it wouldn't be settled. And what would likely happen, what could certainly potentially happen, is that the plaintiffs in this case, if that were to happen, if they were to basically be told, we're overturning this decision because it all has to do with the Republican primary ballot and you can't sue over that. The 14th Amendment can't rule over that. You got to wait till this is an actual federal election. They could say, okay, we'll wait till Donald Trump wins the nomination, which he is almost certainly going to do. And then we'll sue again. And if they do that in August or September or October, then we are talking about this same set of questions with the huge potential ramifications being decided right before or right after the actual presidential election. And if the court were to somehow decide that Donald Trump was disqualified right before the election, or God forbid, right after, we're talking about massive disenfranchisement of all of the people who would have voted for Donald Trump. There's also a scenario that Rick Hassan laid out where Donald Trump could be elected. Um, and if the case had been punted by the Supreme Court, you could have a Democratic Congress on January, equivalent of January 6th, 2025, when it has to do its duty to certify the 2024 election, essentially say, well, we think we have the power as Congress to disqualify him because we believe he's an insurrectionist. And they point to the January 6th report and, the, and the, all the evidentiary record from Colorado and elsewhere. Then you have a truly full-blown, unprecedented political crisis. Yeah, that's where the nitro meets, meets the glycerin. I mean, we just yeah. did a project in the Senate to clean up the Electoral Count Act of 1887 to avoid a situation where the vice president is put back in the Pence position. Like, you know, your role is only ceremonial, right? And avoiding this perception that one party is essentially saying, wow, you voters, you, you chose someone? That's cute. Yeah. Go F yourself. So, I mean, that, I agree, that is a prescription. I think they're going to avoid that. I think so. But I can't be sure. I can't be sure. And I think that's what's, look, I mean, at this point, I don't want to, I don't want to get too caught as we wind up our discussion on the things that they didn't discuss, the things that they're unlikely to get into. And I agree with you 100% that they're very likely to find the cleanest, off-ramp possible. It probably has something to do with this individual state self-execution question versus Congress having to do something. It's probably the cleanest, or it could be procedural, probably the Congress one. 
if that is the case, having looked at all of this as comprehensively as you have, what do you think is the most lingering aspect of this whole consideration of this case that will continue to stick with us in the future? It's a good question. I wish that the questions around insurrection had been more properly vetted at the high court and they weren't. And I think that if I'm putting on my most pessimistic top hat, these are questions we're going to revisit again in the future. I do think as well that, I mean, personally, I just, the thing I keep coming back to is there are all of these antiquated laws, parts of the constitution, clauses that Donald Trump, for better or worse, has pushed back into the limelight and forced us to consider in the harsh light of the 21st century. The 14th Amendment, Section 3 and Section 5 is one part of that. The Emoluments Clause, which we talked about briefly earlier, is another part of that as well. And with the Emoluments Clause, it's not something that no one had really ever thought of. Only a few scholars had been touched in recent decades because no one really needed to until Donald Trump. And I really think that as a way to try to think about fortifying democracy against whatever things may come up, whatever may challenge us, just like the Electoral Count Reform Act, we put that in place. The Congress passed that reform after what happened in 2020 and 2021. I do think we need some kind of set of scholars or experts or clairvoyance, frankly, to think more comprehensively about the other kinds of issues that might arise, the other parts of our democracy, our government, our constitution that are going to come up in this kind of context. And people are going to be using their motivated reasoning and they're going to be arguing and shading in certain directions for certain outcomes that they want. And I don't think it's good for our legal system. I don't think it's good for our democracy. And so I keep coming back to that. And I wish someone would do that sort of deeper study of the other hidden, I don't know, vulnerabilities, vagaries, time bombs that we would be better addressing now as opposed to waiting for a second Donald Trump presidency or whoever else comes down the line that tests these things in a moment when people want to shape it one way or the other and then fixing it for what it should be. So anyway, I'll give you my riffing there, but (laughs) yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good one. And I think it largely aligns with mine and I may take a moment to get here in my own mind myself. I think what you point to here is the fact that there are these trap doors in the constitution and what we've seen not revealed because I think we knew this, but I think what we've seen really laid out in stark detail is what we've been talking about throughout this discussion, which is the justices are looking to achieve a result and that concepts like strict originalism are not real except for scholars at the Federalist Society, that there really is not a judicial philosophy so much as there are results that individual justices want to achieve. And we're subject to the very real human pitfalls and considerations of the nine justices who currently occupy this court and will for a long time. And the concern that I have is that 
they're making increasingly consequential decisions, politically consequential, society-shaking decisions, and I'm losing my trust in whether there's some kind of a philosophical rudder that is guiding them that we could have known about in advance because it is the role of our elected representatives in the Republic to vet these people, to yeah. advise and consent advise on these and consent. Yep. Our president to nominate them, our elected representatives in the Senate to advise and consent on them. And if we don't know how they're going to make these decisions, and if indeed they're making them for quasi-political reasons, that is a problem for me. The antidote, unfortunately, because I think court reform ideas are a pipe dream, I think the antidote is to improve and strengthen and refine the mojo for what Article One covers, which is the Congress. We see in the Chevron case right now that the court is seemingly on the verge of removing a tremendous amount of power from the agencies and from the executive branch and essentially taking it over to the legislative branch. But since the legislative branch is non-functional, taking it over to the judiciary. And they're going to be the policymakers. They're mm -hmm. going to be making the decisions. And so to me, that's the uh, Chevron. I, you know what? Listen, for folks listening out there who are like, what's the Chevron? Listen to the Kim Whaley episode. We talk about it a lot. So to me, the take home from this is it's just revealed that we have this fundamental problem. And the only way around it is to get Congress to be functional again and to overcome the fact that the Supreme Court has become a super legislature. All right. On that note, we've got to get you out of here. Andy Kroll, one of our favorite guests on Beyond Politics. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thanks. <laughs>